Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. This is the Bay Area Theater Podcast. I'm Richard Walensky. While we're in the coronavirus lockdown, I'll be presenting weekly interviews with playwrights that I've conducted over the past several years, either when they've come through with a new play or when they've written a novel. My guest is Suzanne Bradbeer, whose play Shakespeare in Vegas will have an online reading directed by Giovanna Sardelli with Karen Ziemba and Patrick Page starting on Thursday, July 23rd at 6 p.m., and it will stream through July 27th at 6 p.m. on the theaterworks.org website. So Shakespeare in Vegas was a play that opened in a couple of different places, and now it's kind of a Zoom reading. What exactly are people going to be watching? They are going to be watching a Zoom reading that has incorporated some playful elements from the Zoom universe. Let's go back and talk a little about the play, and then we'll talk a little about how to translate that into Zoom, which is sort of halfway, I think, between an audio play and a visual play. It's an odd combination that's seems to be still evolving at this point. This play began a couple of years ago and has been put on in how many places? Two or three? Yes, two productions plus a workshop that Karen did, Karen Ziemba did. And then, you know, as in play development, tons of readings and things like that. Was this supposed to have been an actual play at Theatre Works this year? No, no. It's a play that Giovanna and I... I had written maybe two scenes and immediately thought of her. We had met each other at the Lark Play Development Company in New York City, which does not produce plays. It is solely for development. And I thought it might be a play that she would respond to, but she did. So as I was writing it, you know, I thought of Giovanna. In fact, she worked with me at my writing group at the Actors Studio, and we did several public readings of it together, and then a workshop with a company called The Drilling Company in New York City, and that's the workshop that Karen did. Let's go back on the play itself. It is a comedy about, it sounds like he's kind of a gangster who wants to bring Shakespeare to Vegas and brings in an actress of a certain age who's having trouble getting parts and she really wants to do Vegas and then they go to Vegas and do Shakespeare. Is that kind of it? A little bit. The difference is she doesn't want to go to Vegas, but she's a highly trained classical theater actress who has become bitter in the lack of opportunity that she's now finding. She is hired by this impresario who has this big dream of bringing uh, Shakespeare to Vegas. You know, if you can bring uh, the Eiffel Tower to Vegas and other sort of crazy things, you know, so that's his big dream. And she is given the opportunity to do roles that she's always wanted to do, like Lady Macbeth and Cleopatra. And so she goes. And then, of course, because it's a comedy, it becomes the worst possible place for her to try to get back her mojo. 
until it becomes the best possible place. It does have underneath the journey of this person who is bitter (laughs) and who is seeking, doesn't even realize, I guess, that she's seeking to find the joy again in doing what she loves. And part of that is being part of a team creating a story which is, I think, what most of us fell in love with when we started in theater, being part of that ensemble, creating a story, and whether you were an actor or the writer, and I started out as an actor, or the costume designer or the assistant costume designer, whatever it was, being part of that was so magical. And then along the way, you know, you lose sometimes your, 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 your sense of spirit about it, your sense of delight in it. And Uh, If you're not careful, you can become bitter. And so the only way to approach that kind of interior journey for me would be to make it as funny as possible because otherwise it would be too darn depressing and dreary. (laughs) So put this person who's on this journey into a place like Las Vegas and let the shenanigans evolve. So what brought you to the idea of having this actress decide to go and do the Shakespeare. I assume it came out of some kind of idea about getting the mojo back, or did the story come before that? I love that question. You know, technically, so I mentioned this company called the Drilling Company, and they had commissioned me and some other people to write short plays, like 10-minute plays, along a theme. And the theme was theft. And I thought, well... I want to write an unusual kind of theft. And I landed on one actor stealing a scene from another actor. And then it was, well, how about if the one actor has a very, very, very small role and they're stealing the scene from the lead? So what play would that be? And I I landed on Shakespeare and then I landed on Antony and Cleopatra because in that play, there's Cleopatra. (laughs) And then if you're a woman there are her two handmaidens and they barely have any lines. So I thought, let's have one of them just rage around the, the stage in the death scenes, because all of them die. And, <laughs> and her death becomes bigger than Cleopatra's, which is you know a, a source of comedy. And that play, that little 10 minute play was called Fear and Loathing on the Nile. And it was set in Las Vegas. And that's where it started. And then I, I was so enthralled by these three characters. It was the three women. They were in their dressing room. It was after opening night when such a disaster had unfolded off stage, which we don't see, uh, that I decided to put this character, Margot, the diva, into a whole play. And that's what, how Shakespeare in Vegas came about. How did the impresario come about? Oh, yeah. So he was a little bit later. I had written, I think, three scenes at first, it was going to be uh, 10-minute plays. They are doing Antony and Cleopatra in this little 10-minute play, and they're doing Romeo and Juliet in this little 10-minute play, and they're doing Macbeth in this one. And then I thought it would be more satisfying to put them all in the same play, and it's a season of plays, including those three plays. And then so who's putting on that season? And that's where Tony, the impresario, came in. And once he came in, it was a light bulb moment for me because... He, well, first, he was such a fun character to write. It was his dream to make this all happen. And there's also, he's a, he's a wonderful foil to Margot, the diva actress. Is he kind of a Tony Soprano type? You know, I didn't think of him as a Tony Soprano type 
offstage things are alluded to, but I wouldn't call him that level <laughs> of, of mobster. You know, he has some shady uh, things going on that we allude to that aren't, you know, identified. But in the Tony Soprano model, you know, he's a complicated character, but his big dream, his big heart, and there's this story about his grandmother in Sardinia, which is why he loves Shakespeare so much. Margot is not Margot Channing. Right. Although, you know, that's funny because people pointed that out to me. Of course, I should have seen it. But uh, uh, later, Margot is named after one of my closest friends from high school, who is not a diva. I hasten to say, you know, yeah, named her after that friend. Suzanne Bradbeer, let's now go into how you translate this to Zoom. You and Giovanna Sardelli get together and... How does this come to TheaterWorks? Yeah, as I said, Giovanna and I have known each other a long time, and she's loved this play for a long time. And when their programming got, you know, hijacked by this pandemic, they were thinking of, as many theater companies across the country, were thinking of different ways of still sharing creative enterprises and theater. <laughs> and so they decided to do these readings over the summer, and, and she asked if, if Shakespeare in Vegas might be one of them. And I was thrilled to have that happen. And, and she suggested, and you know, Karen, we had worked with her and, and it was such a glorious experience. And she had worked with Patrick, which was also a glorious experience. And it just, they just seemed such a delightful duo to anchor this play. And the other three wonderful actors are from the Bay Area, one of whom I had worked with before. The other members of the cast besides Patrick and Karen, are Melissa Wolfclain and Addie Walters and Nyken Robinson, plus our wonderful stage directions reader, whose name is Kathy Hamilton, because I've done other plays and worked at theater work in other capacities. So we then, you know, once the cast was hired, we, we met in the, you know, Zoom room and... And Giovanna had already thought, and the actors, too, brought so much imagination to how can we make this pop out of, you know, people in their Brady Bunch squares? <laughs> how can <laughs> we, we play with that and, and lean into that in a fun way? And, and I think it, they, they really found marvelous ways to do that. And one of the fun things about Zoom is that, you know, the language, when, of course, for me as a writer, this is delicious. The language is front and center and also close-ups. I mean, you can see the actors' faces that, in a way that you, of course, can't always, unless you're sitting close uh, to the stage, can't always get. So it's a, that's another wonderful byproduct of, of the Zoom room. It's more or less the straight play as written. Do we see the actors' full body, just their, their faces? How does that work? Oh, yeah. So we see mostly their sort of torso end up. And it is interesting how they do. I mean, this is a play that has a lot of physical hijinks and, you know, there are sword fights. I was really thrilled at the way they were able to, uh, there's, there's not a sword fight on the Zoom, but, <laughs> uh, or not really, but um, how they found other ways to be playful. And of course, ideally, you know, down the road, it will find its way on, on stages again, this play. There was a production from, I think, the Public Theater in New York of Tartuffe mm. in which 
what they did is they took the images, the face or body from Zoom and placed it on a virtual stage set. I saw that. Yeah. That was delightful. Suzanne Bradbeer, I'd like to talk a little about your career. You said you started as an actress. Um, you're, You're from Virginia, is that correct? Yes, I grew up in Virginia, Charlottesville, Virginia, and then moved to New York as a young adult and lived there for a long time, and still I'm there part-time in New York. How did you uh, become an actress then? So I was studying French, (laughs) as one does, and then it was a natural, no, I um, was studying French in college, and that's what my BA is in, and I auditioned for a play and was cast, and that sort of set me on this different trajectory. A friend of mine from that production in college said, let's move to New York, and you're you know, at that age where, oh, okay, I've never been there in my life. But yeah. <laughs> so we we did. And I tried that for a while, but it wasn't a natural fit for me. I don't actually like being on stage. <laughs> but what I do love is what and it took me, you know, a few years to figure this out. I love being part of the, the storytelling. And I love writing the story. What got you into writing specifically? Did you just sit down and write your first play? You know, I was in a small theater company in New York, and uh, we started, uh, uh, two of our company members wrote one-woman shows for themselves, which we produced, and I ran the lights. (laughs) And I loved it. I loved what they were doing, but I also realized I was jealous, but I was jealous not of them performing but that they had written this. That was a strange realization for me because I didn't under, I, it wasn't something that I had been thinking about. And then we started a writing workshop in that company and I wrote a short play uh, and then I wrote a full length play, which we produced called Lone Star Grace. Then I started pursuing it and I took classes. Once I made that switch from actor, I mean, I went to the theater a lot anyway, but I I went very specifically to watch how it was done and how, you know, the arc of the story and all the things that are involved in creating a piece for theater for those stage as a writer. I guess that company produced your first plays then. Yes, they produced Lone Star Grace and they produced a play called, it was called Rita Faye Pruitt. I later changed the title to The Sleeping Girl. Uh, So they produced both of those. And that was an incredible, uh, you know, anybody who starts out writing and wondering, well, how, 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 you know, being involved in a small theater company where we did everything ourselves. As I said, I ran the lights, I swept the floor, I took the tickets, I wrote a play, uh, you know, I wrote press releases. (laughs) It, It was a great learning experience. And I was involved with that company for, well, um, maybe five years or so. And the name of the company again was? The name of the company was, and it is a was, unfortunately, Six Figures Theater Company. And it was an all-women's theater company. And it started out before I got involved. It was a company that was focused on producing plays that were written by women and that had roles for enough women uh, actors to play in them, which was distressingly you know, a distressingly small amount of, uh, at the time. And then 
you began expanding outward, you met people, and then uh-huh. you began just sending plays out pretty much? Yeah, yeah. I met people. I, I met Jim Houghton, who founded Signature Theater Company. He, at the time, was artistic director of a wonderful play development organization called the New Harmony Project. And so he, as the artistic director of the New Harmony Project, brought me to Southern Indiana and other people, writers, to work on a play of mine called Full Bloom, which was the second play I ever wrote. That sort of led to other relationships, as these things do. Uh, I also worked as a dramaturg for Jim on his Arthur Miller season. I don't know if you know Signature Theatre Company in New York, but they started out doing one playwright's work per year. And now they have multiple things going on and they have this gorgeous, big, glorious space on 42nd Street. But they started out in a very small you know, place in the Lower East Side. I think Romulus Linney was their first playwright that they did. And uh, I was part of the Arthur Miller season, so I got to work on a play that they were doing of his. He wasn't alive at the time. He was. <laughs> or was he it? He was. Yes, I got to work with him. Really? That was the American clock? Yes. Yeah. At the time, Signature did three plays of the writer. So they did The American Clock. The American Clock had not done well when it was first produced in New York, distressingly. And it was a play that Arthur Miller had wanted to revisit. It had then later been done in London to much acclaim. So when they were discussing what plays to do, that was one of the plays that he wanted to do. So he actually did changes to the play. As the dramaturg, my job was to make, the American clock takes place just before the the crash of 1929 and on past it. But it, the central part of the play is the depression. And it has music. It has a huge cast. It's a, a, a really wonderful theatrical event. And my job was to make every reference period reference alive for the cast so that when somebody in the play mentioned a quarter, we knew what that meant in those, those times, how much that was or how much, you know, the price of gas or who, of course, everyone knows Winston Churchill, but any reference, a, a musician, a singer, I made up a glossary so that everybody could be as immersed in that world as possible. And also in that, I got to be the one who called Arthur Miller when the cast had a question, <laughs> which was really pretty thrilling. And also he, he did a little work on the play, even though it had already been produced and published, and, but that's not uncommon uh, as I have found in my own life. <laughs> so one day he sent me out to the New York Public Library because this was pre-Google to ask me to do research on the old marathon dances, you know, where you would the dance until you drop and there would be one winner and you basically you were dancing for food. So I did a lot of research, distilled, requested, distilled the information that I got at the library into one page. And then he wrote a new monologue for one of the characters from, from that information. They shoot horses, don't they? Sadly, I haven't seen that movie, but yeah, I believe that it's right. It's a good movie. Did you learn anything specifically from working with Miller I mean, that was kind of just Miller being Miller? Yes. One of the things that really struck me, and at the time that I was working on that project, I was writing my first full-length play. So basically, I was a brand new writer myself. And one of the times that I called in with questions, Signature Theater had just was just opening. In fact, they opened with that play 
their space on 42nd Street, the one prior to the one they're in now, um, a beautiful off-Broadway theater of about 160 seats. And when I called him to ask a question, he asked me, because at this point we were in previews and you know everybody was still working on the play. Uh, and he asked me, how are audiences liking it? Because he hadn't come in yet to see it was the first couple of previews, I think. And I was so struck that here was this icon, you know, still, uh, you, you never lose that. You want a, your story to be heard and you want to convey what you're trying to say in an in a engaging way. And yes, you know, they were responding, but he still wanted that. That was his, his first question, as I remember it. And another one was his sense of humor. One time I called and we had arranged that I was going to call at eight o'clock on a Sunday morning. And I think it was the first time I was calling. So I was incredibly excited and nervous. And I believe I'm, and I didn't want to be late. <laughs> so I, and I sometimes can be late. So I um, called at I, maybe 7.59 and he answered the phone and he said, you're too early. And I, I said, oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And I hung up. And then I called back, you know, a minute and a half later. And he said, I was just kidding you. <laughs> Suzanne Bradbeer, I'd like to talk to you a little about uh, something I mentioned before we went on the air, which is about your play, The God Game. And the reason I mentioned this is because I found a fascinating discussion between you and the director from 2017. And it seems to me that now, from a political perspective, that particular play might have extra resonance because it's about evangelicals and, I mean, we would call them Trumpists, and we're all having difficulty in even talking to these people. And yet in this play you make a very strong effort to kind of be sympathetic to them. Is that pretty much right? Well, the difference is that when I wrote the play, there was no Trump. I mean, he existed, of course, and, and living in New York, I was well aware of him. But he, I never in my wildest nightmares dreamed that he would be president when I was writing that play. So uh, the thing about the characters in this play is that they're Republicans, but they're not Trumpists. They would be never, I believe they would be never Trumpists in this day and age. You know, there's a group called the Lincoln Project. I imagine they would be part of that. It's a three character play. And so they, but they, they're moderate Republicans, you know, an astonishingly, astonishingly, sadly vanishing breed or vanished almost, but yes, an evangelical Christian. So I did lean in. I wanted to have this, a moral dilemma about God and using God in a political campaign and putting it in a, in a personal relationship, a, a man and his wife and their best friend who happens to be a campaign manager. And the man is a senator. I think it does have a lot of resonance for now. That conversation was really interesting that I had with that particular director. The play has been done a lot, but that interview that you're referring to was the first time it had been done in this Trump time of our American lives. <laughs> what I saw in the interview was you talking about what theater and story can do, how on some level it can change hearts and minds. And then I wrote a little note, but can you get them to wear masks? 
That should be the next play. <laughs> but you also wrote, I believe in theater's potential to nudge and challenge and question and hold a mirror up to our world. In that sense, where does live theater fit compared to even Zoom or or a film? What do you think live theater does that's different, and what are we missing right now? Yeah, I, I love that question, and I think there's nothing like being in a place together with other people and experiencing a story together and laughing with other people or crying or being exhilarated or astonished or gasping in surprise. And I think that's irreplaceable, you know, and while this pandemic is going on, I, I love what theater works and other theaters are doing in terms of bringing story to us in imaginative other ways. But, you know, we all long to get back to the stage and we all long as to be, because we're all audience members too, you know, those of us who create theater. And we want to be in that room watching someone else's story and, you know, and cry and laugh and be surprised and moved and infuriated, talk about it afterwards. Go to a restaurant. <laughs> there are people here who say that the most important thing about a play is not when it happens, but the dialogue between the uh, audience members afterward. I think that's so true. And, you know, The God Game is a completely different play than Shakespeare in Vegas. And it's sort of however the story the story finds its form, you know, and that story found a very different form than Shakespeare in Vegas because it's a very different story. Yes, that that was a particular play where I longed and was told by people that we talked about it and talked about it afterwards. You know, we we had an hour drive <laughs> to get back to our house and we just back and forth, back and forth, back and forth the whole time. One other thing that I want to mention in terms of live theater is I was talking to the cast of the Harry Potter play mm. a few months ago and when you're watching a play like that with the magic on stage, there's a tendency to forget that it's live. And at one point, the actor playing Harry Potter dropped his wand. Mm. And that was the moment. He was, of course, embarrassed by it. But for me, watching it, that was the moment where I went, oh, my God, they're on stage. This is happening in front of me yeah. because mistakes happen. Yeah. That's so true. Mistakes can be so glorious. <laughs> they can be horrifying or scary in the moment, but they can also be so, so, so glorious. That feeling of being alive <laughs> and witnessing something that they didn't the next day or the, or the previous day. I mean, a friend of mine saw the 12th night that was done in New York. Someone in the audience had a heart attack and they had to stop the proceedings on stage and the way that was done you know was she said amazing they you know, everybody froze but they didn't draw the curtains quote unquote because i don't even think there were curtains to draw the the cast stayed on stage the person was helped and was fine eventually but yeah that those kinds of things happen when we're together completely off subject so you're working with Patrick Page. Did he talk at all about his experience working on Spider-Man, the musical? You know, I found out much to my chagrin that Patrick Page, so, you know, we would start our rehearsal at a certain time, say it was noon. And so I would show up at 1159. 
Well, it turned out that Patrick Page showed up at a half an hour early every single rehearsal. We were rehearsed for a week, so five days, at half an hour early. And he did engage with whoever else showed up early, which I didn't know about. So he may have talked about Spider-Man at that time. I don't know. <laughs> he certainly had many wonderful stories to tell. Suzanne Bradbeer. Okay, so you're stuck in rural Wyoming during the pandemic, hopefully getting back to New York and life sometime in the fall. Are you working on plays while you're there? My husband would probably object to stuck in, but <laughs> uh, it's so beautiful here. We're about a, an hour and a half from Yellowstone National Park. But yes, I am. I am working on, it has been hard to concentrate, I have to say. I'm also teaching, but I am working on a, a, a play that takes place in rural Wyoming. It's a musical, and uh, it's about a couple of librarians who fall in love while they're trying to save their small town public library. And then I'm going to work on a, a new play about a, a somebody who works in fire management, probably for a, some something like Shenandoah, or not Shenandoah, that's where I'm, that's where I'm in Virginia, where I grew up, but Shoshone National Forest or Yellowstone Park, uh, you know, fires are a big deal here as they are out where you are. Are you planning to work on any screenplays or television, or is it just theater for you? Sometimes I dream about Shakespeare in Vegas, I think, lends itself to a multi-arc television show because you're, you've got, you, know, you can bring in guest stars, but you also have this ensemble of people and, and uh, putting on a show. Uh, so sometimes I think about doing that, but no, I haven't so far really worked in those areas. And one final question uh, before we went on the air. I asked you about the pandemic in Wyoming. You said it's been pretty much invisible, but now it's beginning to hit. Yeah. Yes, that's true. Yeah. We're still, you know, in the lower four states. When it first started, people were very, you know, they did close the businesses and the restaurants and the churches. And, you know, you, you would go to the grocery store once a week and, and have your mask on. And then after a while, you know, people started not to be as careful. And I think that's going to change again because it has, it has really, the, there have been more and more cases lately. Um, nothing to compare with, with some other hard hit states, but still a, a very big concern to us. Uh, do you see any people who are refusing to wear masks? You know, I haven't seen any of those. I've gone into, like I mentioned to you, I had to go to Walmart <laughs> to pick up a headphone. So I do see people, some people there who don't have masks on. I don't, I haven't seen any confrontations. So I haven't, you know, those videos that go around of, of just horrible people screaming. I haven't seen anything like that. We even had a rally here uh, about a month ago. And almost everybody was masked and it was very well attended, you know, in a very small town, you know, after the George Floyd murder, it was uh, very moving to be a part of that. Oh, you're not in Jackson Hole, are you? No, no. I don't mean to disparage Jackson Hole, but as you know, we sort of call it the Hamptons of Wyoming and it's, that doesn't appeal <laughs> to us. I'm sure it's lovely for others. You've been listening to an interview with Suzanne Bradbeer, whose play Shakespeare in Vegas has an online reading directed by Giovanna Sardelli with Karen Ziemba and Patrick Page, and that's starting 
July 23rd and continuing through July 27th, 2020, at 6 p.m. And, and you can find it by going to the theaterworks.org website. I'm Richard Walensky, and see you next Sunday for another edition of the Bay Area Theater Podcast. Mm-hmm.